Um, I grew up eating very standard white Midwestern American food. My mom was a really good cook. Thank you, Joel. The weird thing that my mom made growing up, which I think is, might just be a family recipe, it was called Swiss spaghetti. I think I've talked to some of you about this, where she would um, put some, like, well, cooked spaghetti, she would put Swiss cheese down in a pan and fry it a little bit, put some spaghetti on top of that, and then Swiss cheese on top, and it was basically spaghetti caked in, Swiss, in fried Swiss cheese. I did not like that. So she always made me, nor it was just too much cheese. But that's what, that was a type of spaghetti that we would eat. Um, but my mom was a very good cook, and I was very lucky because you need someone who's a good cook if you're going to be eating that kind of food very consistently. Um, for one of my childhood birthdays, my mom asked me what kind of cake I wanted for my birthday, and I had heard of but never tasted cheesecake. I've told this story so many times because I think it's very indicative of what like food was like for me growing up. But um, she was like, oh, no, you don't want to have a cheesecake. It tastes like cheese. And I was just thinking, like, oh, it tastes like cheddar cheese. I don't, that sounds awful. Why would I eat that? And so then several years pass. I am in college. And I try cheesecake for the first time at the goading of some of my friends. And it's the greatest thing I've ever had in my life. <laughs> and I called my mom on my, on my way home from that event I was at. I called my mom and I was like, I can't believe you don't like this. It doesn't taste like cheese. It tastes amazing. And she said, oh, it doesn't. I've, I've never actually tried it. It just sounded gross to me. <laughs> and so I just never even bothered trying it. Because of course it tastes like cheese. It's in the name. So my mom does not like trying new foods. And cheesecake is now my favorite dessert but I was deprived of it for the first 18 years of my life. Um, I start with these stories and with this sharing prompt just to give you a small insight into what food was like for me growing up. Food is really central to culture, and now you have a very small peek into mine, if you can call Midwestern American food uh, culture. Um, it, food, it, it ties us to our family of origin. It marks tradition. It defines us in ways that we might not understand until we're away from home and missing mom's cooking or when we try another culture's food for the first time. Yeah, food is deeply personal. And it's not just what we eat, it's also what we don't eat and why. Um, we can abstain from sweets for health reasons, meat for moral or environmental reasons. Some cultures and uh, religions avoid um, eating uh, certain foods at certain times, like during Ramadan or Lent or the Sabbath. It can be a gift that we give and receive, and at other times it can be our nemesis. I know that if I just eat the normal amount of food that I desire, I will gain a lot of weight, so I'm in a constant battle of not like, limiting how much I would otherwise eat. Um, food is life, and it's not just life from the perspective of calories. It's part of our joy our discipline, and in Romans 14, it's very much a part of our identity. And that's where we arrive at Romans 14, in which two vastly different cultures, one of which very much identifies itself by what it eats, must eat together. So in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul's been explaining why Jews and Gentiles are in this whole thing together. Um, why do Gentiles get to be in now? Why aren't Jews coming like you might expect? And why is it all the same faith now? And the crux of his argument so far has been that righteousness is by faith. And if righteousness comes from faith, then you no longer have to be a genetic child of Abraham, which allows Gentiles in. And you also, uh, if righteousness is from faith, you also no longer have to follow Jewish law, 
which especially allows Gentiles in. And Paul argues that that is not only true now, but in fact has always been true. And he goes all the way back to Abraham and demonstrates how Abraham was considered righteous before there was law, before there was circumcision, and uses that as proof that even now righteousness still does not come from law. So that's the why of everything that we've described so far. Uh, Jews are struggling, and Gentiles are coming in droves because righteousness is now by faith. So starting in chapter 12, he switched from the why to the how. This is why you have to live together, and starting in verse 12, or chapter 12, this is how you have to live together. Um, so that is the context with which we will, um, that Paul has written so far, and, and with that we'll read verses uh, 1 through 9. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days as alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord, and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living." So last week, Pastor Fong walked us through the second half of Romans 13, and a key point that he made here is that the, uh, the letter of the law does not matter anymore so much as the spirit of the law, and in fact, you can accomplish the spirit of the law by summing all the law up into one commandment, which is to love each other. So that's how we now accomplish. The spirit of the law is still there. It hasn't been taken away. Jesus did not remove it, um, but we now accomplish the spirit of the law by loving others and not by following the letter of the law. And that, for people at this time, for Jews at this time, it would have been a hard pill to swallow. Um, in the first century, there were three practices laid out by the law that, uh, that were core to Jewish identity. Circumcising male newborns at, when they were eight days old, eating specific foods prepared in specific ways, dietary laws, and um, observing holy days, especially the Sabbath. Now, circumcision, certainly part of identity, not as visible to other people, um, but the other two holy days and dietary restrictions are the ones he talks about here today and are very observable and very core to identity. Um, Paul has already talked about circumcision in other places in Romans 2 through 4. I won't go through those for the sake of time, but um, if you're interested in what he has said about circumcision in this book, you can go to Romans 2 and Romans 4. Okay, so in verse 1, if we could just put them up on the screen as we go, he refers to some of the brothers in Rome as weak in faith. And for someone who is trying to unify a church that has so many reasons to not be unified, that seems like a bad PR move. Um, he also doesn't leave much to the imagination on who the weak ones are. Uh, he gives a very clear example in verse 2, that one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. So reading this, along with the second example that we'll get to about holy day observance, it's really clear that Paul is talking about Jews when he talks about the ones who are weak in faith. And Jews were not strictly vegetarian, 
but they had very specific way, uh, meats that they would eat and ways that they would eat it. And so if you weren't sure of the provenance of the meat, whether what kind it was or whether it was prepared the correct way, then it was just easier to, meet, to just eat vegetables. And so that's why that, that we read that as referring to Jews. So it leads to the obvious question of what makes someone weak, or what, in this case, what makes the Jews weak. And based on the context of Romans 13, where uh, Paul replaces Jewish law with love, not the spirit of it, but the letter of it, and based on the current chapter where he calls out dietary restrictions and holy days, weak uh, means to put unnecessary restrictions on yourself. Now, why might you do that? Well, for the Jews, they might have been actually convinced that those restrictions were still God's desire. Um, in the context of Romans, Paul sees them as dietary law, sees dietary laws and holy day observances as identity markers that differentiate between us and them. If I eat these foods at these times, and if I observe these days, and if I circumcise my male children, that makes me a Jew, that makes me in. And it's very much about what identifies someone as a Jew, especially as a people group who has, for the past few centuries, been consistently dominated by other people. And if you're trying to maintain a semblance of who you are as a people and not be fully assimilated into the culture, you hold these practices, you hold on to them uh, for dear life. So in verse 3, he calls out both Jews and Gentiles uh, for how they might see each other as a result of disagreements about food. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So Jews should not judge Gentiles or think less of them for not following the law, and Gentiles should not despise Jews or think less of them for following laws that are no longer required and that might be a little inconvenient. And he doesn't indicate, we'll talk about this more in the Holy Day section, but he doesn't indicate that either side should change. Um, so just hold on to that, and we will come, come back to that because it becomes more explicit. So when I first read this preparing for the sermon, it made sense to me that, um, you know, if you actually believe that these were laws passed down by God, then it makes sense to me that, like, if you're inviting people into your faith, you would want them to follow that too, right? If you're believing in the same God. So the Jewish position here actually makes sense to me from their perspective. Um, but I was a little bit more questioning the Gentile perspective, which is like, why do you care? Nobody's telling, at least in the context of this passage, no one's telling you to, um, it doesn't seem like the Jews are telling Gentiles to, like, you must do this. Um, I think they do in other passages, but for here we'll take it for what's uh, being said. Um, like, let them do their own thing. You know, if the Jews eat their food, the Jews observe their days, wouldn't that be enough for them to just eat their own, do their own thing and not, um, and not do what they say, not, not follow their laws? But then, I don't know, like, did, did, like, a Gentile prepare, like, a feast of meat at some point, and then the Jews wouldn't eat it, and then it spoiled? Like, why, why are they so frustrated? Um, but I immediately... What immediately came to mind is an example of that where I have actually been on both sides and I've been the judger and the despiser, um, and that is in the case of alcohol. So I was raised in two traditions that taught that it was never, that you shouldn't really ever drink, there was never any a good reason to. Um, I, my parents and grandparents, my family has a long lineage in the Salvation Army Church, and then after the Salvation Army, when we moved to North Carolina, we went to a Southern Baptist Church, both of which are very anti-alcohol. So up until I was like 20, 21, about the time I could drink, um, I was like really opposed to drinking, and I really judged people who did. 
but then something mysterious happened on my 21st birthday, and then, um, and then I started judging people who didn't drink. I started judging the tradition. As soon as my opinion changed, I actually did think, I trivialized that, but I actually did do a lot of soul-searching about that to see what I thought. Um, and, then, um, and then I came to the conclusion that it's actually okay to drink. And then what did I start doing? I immediately started judging people who thought it wasn't okay. Like, why are you putting those restrictions on yourself? And it's just like, what is it about me that makes me want to pick a side and then judge the person from the other side and is so wants to do that so badly that in the same argument, I will switch sides and still judge the other side, right? It's just, it harkens back to me for Romans 7, where Paul talks about, like, I do all these things that I don't want to do and that don't make any sense. Why do I do them? And he's just frustrated with himself, and that I kind of think about that here. Um, okay, so on what basis should these groups not judge or despise each other? And in verse 4, Paul says it's because... Uh, says this because it is before his own master that he stands or falls. In other words, the only test of whether someone is correct in their belief or practice is if God approves of them. And not only is it up to God, but he, Paul says that he already knows what the answer is. Because in the second half of verse 4, he says, uh, so he says, it is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So not only is God the judge of someone's belief and practice, but in the specific instance of food, God will cause the believer to stand. And how does he do that? He does it because he has taken away the standing and falling from the believer. Righteousness by faith tells us that it is no longer up to us to cause ourselves to stand or to fall. Righteousness by faith dictates that Christ has done all the work and in so doing has made us stand, has caused the believer to stand, has caused the Jew to stand, and has caused the Gentile to stand. And this is a key point of this passage. What you say or do in these matters of faith or practice, even if they are theological issues that you take very seriously, have no bearing on whether you stand or fall before God. We have seen righteousness by faith, righteousness by faith throughout Romans, and we continue to see it here. Your righteousness is not your own. You cannot stand by your own strength. God causes you to stand by virtue of your faith in him. And when we are faithful, God is faithful a million times over. So, in this example about food, Paul said that these two groups should not think less of each other. Don't let, they shouldn't let it be something that separates them and that their identity is first and foremost in Christ and not in the food that they eat. So, in verse 5, Paul moves on to the second uh, identity marker, Holy Day Observance, and he uses the second identity marker to make the point stronger. So, he states in the second half of verse 5 that each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So in the first four verses, he doesn't say, he calls out both sides for how they're uh, treating the other side or how they're talking about the other side, but he never says that either side has changed or should change. And in this verse 5, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He basically makes it explicit. Do what you think is right and mind your own business. And at first, based on him calling the Jews weak, we might think that Paul is implying that Jews are doing the wrong thing. And I think in a broader sense, in the scope of Romans, he would say that. He would say that these restrictions, any way that you still rely on the law to find your identity, to think that you are good, to think that you are righteous, he speaks out against. That's, but that's about the why. And in this passage, Paul is very much about the why. Why are you doing those things? You don't actually have to stop doing the practices. Be convinced in your own mind and mind your own business. So 
why can each group choose? If each group has the same belief, why does each group get to choose how to practice their belief? Because their righteousness and identity, again, we'll keep harping on this, come from faith, not in eating the correct food or observing the correct days, or not even in not eating those foods or uh, observing those days. He tells Jews it's fine to not observe the laws, and he tells Gentiles it's fine to observe them. And in fact, not only is it fine, uh, it's a good thing. So in verse 6, he says that both parties do what they do in service of the Lord. A continued focus on the why. This is a continued departure from righteousness by works and towards righteousness by faith. What you do doesn't matter so much as why you do it. And both parties are doing what they do in honor of the Lord. Paul sees them as genuine, and it might come out differently. It might look different based on their background, but they're both genuine. So eat or don't eat. It doesn't matter. But don't judge those who eat and don't despise the ones who don't. Don't judge those who ignore the Sabbath, and don't despise the ones who observe it. Mind your business. And then in the end of the passage, he, uh, he starts going on to the big picture in verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Every Jew and every Gentile is alive right now and will die someday, and they need to do the right thing with the life that they have. And that right thing is not based on whether you eat the correct foods or observe the correct days. It's about doing what you do in service to the Lord. And if you live your life in service to the Lord, whatever that looks like, whatever it means for you or for your people or for your church, or for your family, God will cause you to stand. There's one faith, one righteousness obtained through that faith, one Christ who died for all, one uh, Christ who gave an example of how to live and how to die, and why to live and why to die. And we are to follow that example as one unified people. This is the core of where Jews and Gentiles then, and we today, should be seeking our identity. We all live to the Lord. We all do what we do in honor of the Lord. The unifying point is not what we do. It's why we do it. Which leads me to our sharing prompt for today, if we could put that on the screen. Um, What beliefs do you see as dividing lines between yourself and other believers? And how might God be calling you to seek unity in those areas? What do you look for in others? in order to put them in boxes? What are the lines that you draw in order to categorize someone as in or out, right or wrong? We live in a really political world today that has seemingly become more political in the last, call it seven years, eight years. And that culture is constantly trying to tell people that they are in or out. Oh, you voted for Trump? Ah, okay, that tells me everything I need to know about you. Oh, you voted for Biden? Okay, that's all right. We don't have to go any further. That tells me everything I need to know about you. Oh, you support Black Lives Matter? You own a gun? Okay, yeah, that tells me everything I need to know about you. But that culture of taking one small part of someone and making it all of them is not just out there, it's in here. Oh, you got baptized as a baby? That tells me everything I need to know about you. You dip a cracker in a cup instead of, oh, okay, that tells me everything I need to know about you. 
That culture is not just out there, it's in here. And that's what Paul's speaking to. Just like the people to whom Paul was writing were steeped in it, we want to put people in these categories about what we can easily observe. We want to be able to say, if he believes this or he believes that, then he is obviously this other thing, and therefore he's over there and I'm over here. Paul gives us a different vision. And from that, we'll go into verse 10 through the, rest, through the rest. Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or why do you despise your brother? The two verbs, he's still saying the Jews were judging and the Gentiles were despising. He's still keeping the parallelism. Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So in this passage, he's quoting Isaiah 45-23, and he's basically taking an individualistic approach to how judgment will happen. So we've seen throughout Romans that Romans is about groups of people, but in, the, in, that, uh, in a long you know, uh, sermon, basically, or letter about groups of people, there are pockets where he's referring to individuals, and this is one of those cases. Um, and we see that by his use of Isaiah 45. Every is basically indicating that the bowing and confession is referring to the individual. Essentially, everyone's going to have to defend themselves. He basically presents it as almost like a court case where you're going to stand before God and you're going to say what you did and why you did it. And this is why it doesn't matter what someone does in your own church because you are not their judge. God is their judge. And you can help them seek earnestly to follow God, but how that plays out in their life is gonna, might look different for them and probably will look different from them. Um, one of those people that's in the other camp, that's in the other side of their line, there's probably at least one of those in here for each of you. There's some of you in here for me who do things differently or believe things differently than I would. But you will give an account of yourself to God, and so will I. And we can seek unity here based on not what we do, but, but why we do it. So this last section, it's an encouragement to seek unity, but it is also, and I'll just touch on this briefly, it's also a clear indication of a higher calling. You can't just do whatever you want. And your life and actions will be seen and accounted for to God. Don't quarrel over opinions. Don't split into two churches because you baptize people differently. Uh, Don't force divisions over disagreements, but also think critically about what you believe and how that plays out in your life because you're going to have to answer for it someday. Okay, let's uh, summarize what we just read. Paul calls out two very specific examples of how Jews self-identify as separate from Gentiles, and by, you know, as like a derivation of that, how Gentiles separate from Jews. Oh, we keep these dietary laws or holy days, that makes us better, or we don't do that because we recognize the truth of righteousness by faith. Both are identity markers. As a result, he says that uh, identity should come from faith in Christ, and it's one faith that begets righteousness to all people. And therefore, neither Jews nor Gentiles necessarily need to change their approach. You should have a good why. You should be aware of righteousness by faith and let um, let that lead to everything that you do. And in the rest of Romans, Paul indicates that that actually might change Jews' behavior. But he focuses here to say the behavior doesn't matter. What you eat or what you don't eat, which days you observe or don't observe, doesn't matter anymore. And in lieu of this clear instruction, he says that each person should do what they think is right, 
And ultimately, the behavior itself won't matter as much as the reason, which is the same for both Jew and Gentile. It's that you have a righteousness that is not your own and has been granted to you by faith. There's a lot more to be said in the second half of this passage. We're stopping in verse 12. Um, but um, in the second half, and, and I guess Fred, will, are you doing next week's? Uh, in principle, it doesn't matter what you do, but in practice, it kind of does. Because in practice, you can disturb or, um, you know, basically treat your neighbor with disrespect. And he talks about that in the second half of 14, so I won't get into it here. But in print, this is talking about in principle, it doesn't matter. The why is what matters. In practice, when you're actually living out life with people in the Roman church and in Quicksilver church, it kind of matters. Okay, so what do we do with all this? I know for me growing up, when I would read Romans 14, the immediate temptation was to search for the modern equivalent of weak and then to avoid that behavior. So, okay, the modern equivalent of weak is putting unnecessary restrictions on myself about alcohol, and therefore it is the stronger position to not do that, and therefore I will not, right? And that was what maybe I would have, how I would have applied it um, growing up. And I would like to invite you to resist the temptation to continue to do what Paul is speaking against, which is to figure out where the lines are today and draw them and say, I'm over here and you're over there. Um, the arguments about for like the arguments for being able to drink alcohol are like pretty good, honestly. Jesus did it. Jesus turned water into wine. He encourages Timothy to drink. People all across the New and Old Testament are drinking, and it's never spoken against. Alcoholism is, but that's not what we're talking about. But like, it's really. I remember saying to my parents one day, but like, but Jesus drank wine. Like, how is that not? Like, how is that not? enough for you to say that this is okay. And I think that, you know, I can't exactly remember how that conversation went. I knew that I had a disrespectful sort of uh, approach to it. Um, but I think the conclusion that I've come to is, so what? Does Jesus drank wine, does that mean everyone has to? Does that mean that the Salvation Army Church, which was founded to minister to people who were struggling with addiction and alcoholism, didn't have a good, good reason, Right? Does that mean that the Southern Baptist Church doesn't have a good reason? Sure, it's restrictions. Sure, they could do that, but it's now part of their identity and their tradition of their churches. And if I judge them for that, then I'm just becoming exactly what Paul's speaking out against. Paul is calling us to something greater. He calls Jews to seek identity not in dietary restrictions or observing particular days, but in the common righteousness that both Jews and Gentiles are bestowed as a result of their common faith. And he also calls Gentiles not to find your identity in not doing those things that you must no longer, that you don't have to do anymore, right? Don't think of yourselves as better for doing what you, the law. Don't think of yourselves as better for not doing the law. You may have been raised to think that most topics, political, theological, anything else, had a clear right and wrong, and that anyone that you come across that thinks otherwise is at best misinformed and at worst, intentionally deviant. I remember growing up and uh, I went to college and it took me like about a solid year to reconcile the fact that Democrats could be Christian because I didn't, that's not how I grew up. I didn't know any Democrats growing up. It was just Republicans, pro-life, uh, anti-LGBT, and therefore that, that was like, that was co-identified with, um, with faith for me. 
Faith was those things. Um, but it shouldn't be a dividing line. It shouldn't be, those issues shouldn't be a place where I look for ways that you are different from me and then I stand on my side and I put you over there. So to bring us back to the sharing prompt, if we could throw that up. What beliefs do you see as dividing lines between yourself and other believers, believers, and how might God be calling you to seek unity in those areas? Where do you judge or dislike someone because they are on the wrong side of your line? Are you, like the Gentiles, annoyed by someone who has unnecessary restrictions that inconvenience you? Are you, like the Jews, judging someone because they don't see things the way you do, maybe even thinking that you have the moral high ground? Paul tells us to look past these potential divisions and to seek unity and care for each other in a righteousness that comes through one shared faith, not by following Jewish law or by having correct opinions. We can have the conversation, we can be a church focused on dialogue and talk to each other about the things that we see differently, but unity and identity in Christ and righteousness from faith are the focus. And Paul writes this in Ephesians 4, talking about a similar topic. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's the unity and the peace, and then here's the identity. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word of unity. Thank you that Romans 14 maybe um, is more relevant today than ever. I pray that as we talk about Russia and Ukraine, as we talk about Israel and Palestine, as we talk about our presidential elections, as we talk about matters of faith within our walls that we might disagree on, that you would first and foremost remind us that our identity is in Christ and in what Christ did for us and in our shared faith that it is effective to make us righteous. And that as a result of that shared faith, faith, the person who is on the other side of our line is just as beloved. In your name I pray, amen.